Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Elona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. And in California, we're pretty exposed because of the climactic conditions and geography, the fabulous confluence. We have that largesse. And some people choose to capitalize on that, and some almost dial it down, almost water it down, if you will, because they're following that European model that's quite arbitrary. I almost feel like it was artificially brought about by certain people with certain interests, and the following occurred as a result of that artificiality, if you will. It, we are naturally lending ourselves as a wine region, specifically in Napa Valley, to make wines that are opulent and hedonic. And for some reason, some people feel they need to apologize for it. And I love your spirit. I love that you put your stake in the ground and you said, this is my style. I embrace it. And if you don't like it, that's fine. No judgment. It's, it, it, that's the part where it does become art. Because, I mean, you know, kind of in this room, we're looking around at some different art pieces. They're very different and everyone's going to interpret them different. Some people are comfortable around some art and some people are not. The colors in this room, you know, would you have painted it that? I don't know. You know, you walk into a room and I love staying here. This is cool. I would never have my home that way, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and everyone should decide for themselves. But, but I absolutely do believe and people have heard so many of these stories before. So anyone who's listening to this. You know, I always use things that people can relate to mm-hmm. in my analogies. And I always think of strawberries because most people have had a strawberry. And we love those perfectly red, delicious, just full of sugar and flavor strawberries. So if I'm going to make a strawberry shortcake, kind of probably not going to go to the section in the grocery store or go out and pick the ones that are half green and serve my cake tomorrow, right? I'm probably going to look for the riper ones. You know, there's so many layers of flavors and complexities and phenols and things that develop when they're allowed to, Hmm. um, to become other things. And you're leaving a little bit on the plate if you're picking early. Now, you know, we could get into so many things, acidity and alcohol, and those Mm -hmm. are just, you know, those are just black boxes for all of us because, you know, alcohol is this whole thing, and I get heckled a lot at dinners and you know, people that, you know, have other opinions on it that, uh, oh my gosh, you guys from California are making all these high alcohol wines and that's not how it's meant to be. And it's, it's always difficult to sit back and be quiet because, you know, Mm -hmm. most people don't know that over 14% alcohol in the United States is a dessert class wine. So our government has a tax class over 14% to charge more to make more on alcohol but it has nothing to do with whether the wine is good or bad. I would defy anyone to look at the highest rated wines from any country, France, Italy, Spain. The ones that have won the highest awards are all over 14% because the grape was ripe and alcohol is just one little thing that carries flavor. We do what's called sweet spotting and this is now where it does get a little scientific. We're able to actually play a little bit with alcohols. We can brown bag a bottle brown bag 30 bottles across a long table and have you vote on number one through 30 most by adjusting just the alcohol it could be 12 5 12.8 13.1 14 all the way up and there is a place we call it sweet spotting like a baseball bat or a golf club there's a sweet spot where it goes the furthest where it tastes the best where all those other 
thousands of things that nobody ever talks about come together in harmony and it tastes good and it sings. And sometimes that is a high alcohol. So it's not, we shouldn't be judgmental, we should just trust our palate. And sometimes, yeah, is it bad because we'd all like to drink the third glass of wine and not get a buzz as buzzed? There's maybe a little negativity, but at least you're loving more what you're drinking along the way. And most of the big lobby groups are the ones that, you know, go to the grocery store and look for a $12.99 $12 bottle of wine that's over 14% alcohol. You'll never find it. Why? Those large corporations are never going to pay that whatever 60% extra tax on that bottle of wine to make it taste better. They're never going to do it. So what do we do? We see articles every day by lobby groups and large corporations about the high alcohol. So, you know, it's the spin, like every business. I guess my point here, I'm not trying to judge large corporations or cheaper wines because I love them and drink them too. Mm -hmm. What I'm telling people is trust your palate and be open-minded to some of the great things that are out there. I think that's such a seminal point. I just want to pause on that for a moment. Trust your palate. That should be a mandate, period. But also dig a little deeper. Don't just parrot somebody else's rhetoric because you don't really know what their agenda is. Find out for yourself. Don't listen to anybody. Just do research. Don't be a low information drinker if you're investing your time and money into it. Right. Uh, so you touched upon your peer group and I'll share this in line with what we're just discussing last year at the premier in Napa Valley which I'll explain in a moment what that event is. I tasted Steve's wine and a group of peers and the deliciousness factor just blew me away. And you Thank remember you. that conversation uh, that we had? I love that D word. <laughs> I had, I was beaming from ear to ear. It just made me happy. All the wines in the room were deserving and well-made and um, very different. There's a huge diversity, but your wines made me smile. Yay. Um, and you know, you touched upon the layered um, when you were making wine and you had an opportunity. I mean, it's some of the best times I've had was in wine making facilities and custom crush facilities with people. There's so much camaraderie, there's so much information exchange, transparency. Wine making community is the best as far as I'm awesome. concerned. And now you get to show your wines in that community. So the event I was referencing is Premier Napa Valley. It's a trade-only event. It's an auction. It culminates in an auction, I should say. Prior to that, there's a number of preview parties. Everybody crafts a lot of wine that's not commercially available, that's strictly fashioned for this auction. They come in 5 to 20K slots. And you get to show them to a trade community that flies from all over the world, really. And you get to showcase your interpretation of the grape in that vintage. And that's also a very powerful vintage preview because you're tasting among the group of the peers, really, creme de la creme. So tell us about this. It's such an exciting time. You know, yeah, I, you know, I equate this to sort of my Super Bowl every year because it's invite only. So you're right, people come from China, all over the world, and we make a unique wine that will not be sold to the public. So those five cases, those coveted five cases to 20 case lots, our wine that will never be sold to the public. It's going to go to that auction bidder, and it could be it could be a store, it could be a restaurant, it could be an individual buying through their you know wine store that's representing them there. So they're bidders, even remote bidders, just like you see in the movies, right? And it's that cattle, hey, you know, it's the same. <laughs> it's it's a scary moment, and as a young winemaker, I can tell you it was it was this, it was more scary than the day I got married to sit in that room. And just pray out of 225 auction lots, somebody please raise your paddle, right? Because where else 
can people go over a period of days to various parties, which is a little bit tough. In the beginning, I didn't have the parties. Now we do. But, you know, the morning of the auction, there's four hours where you walk around a room with 225 barrels and you get a chance to taste everything. So I'm in a room now with, you know, the most famous people, Philippe Milka, Heidi Barrett, you know, Aaron Pott, you know, the guys you've heard of from Napa. Um, and my wares are sitting right next to theirs, right? So you literally can take a little taste of Aaron's, walk four feet over and taste mine. And, you know, there's no behind the curtain Wizard of Oz. It's, it goes across your tongue and you decide right there. My God. It's like having a bunch of cars and hopping in them test driving. You're kind of like, hmm, wow. I thought this would be a little faster. You know, it's that kind of thing you get to see for yourself. So I love it because to me it's just, you know, clothes come off. You're, you're there, right? It's the raw thing. And they get to decide. And uh, I think it's one of the things that's pushed our brand a little bit to where it is now. Um, you know, I had a guy who's a master som um, back in the day, was a young master som out of Nevada, started a company called Nevada Wine Agents. His name's Ken Fredrickson. Mm -hmm. And Ken, Ken came and tasted some of my barrels and said, you know, you, you, need, to, you need to enter these wines in this competition. I'm like, oh my God, nobody knows anything about me I and you know by God going in just out of the blue my very first year we were one of the top 10 lots out That's of 225 cool, so you know it's kind of cool right so mm -hmm. it kind of feeds you then like okay it gives you just at least a tiny pat on the back because in this world right if I if you're not if I'm not advertising in various magazines or you know mm -hmm. I can't afford to have fly people into my jet or, you know, put them up at my chateau or villa to hope that they'll like my wines. I might take you out and buy a tequila shot along the way and hope you'll <laughs> like us. But, uh, you know, that's really it. It's, it's for us, it's more guerrilla marketing and just letting people learn who we are, see what we're producing. And, and that definition of handcrafting is really, I think, very apparent when you taste our wines. There's so many conversations these days about authenticity and what it really means. What is the wine quality and authenticity? And what you're describing to me comes as close, if not precisely, aligns with those values because this is who you are and also you have to do things that way. You have to walk the straight and narrow like we talked about earlier. So when somebody's pleased by what they're tasting, you know, this is the authenticity that everybody's seeking because there's no other framework. There's no bells and whistles. And that raw, nude nature, like you describe it, is so vivid, it's so powerful. Um, and, you know, looking at your bottles, when I first saw it years ago, they were, they're very elegant, they're very beautiful, but they stand out so much. There's a personality before you even get inside of it. And I know that everything that you do, you touch all aspects of this business. There's a thought behind it. There's a story behind it. So tell us more about your brand that's available to the consumer. And by the way, just to put a pin in it, if you guys are looking for the premier auction lots, um, you can't purchase them. There's a retailer that acquires them at the auction, and then you can contact them. You have to be a little patient because the wine is in the barrel at the time of the auction, but then you can um, acquire them later on. So it's, you can participate. But back to your 
portfolio that's commercially available. You, again, such distinct bottles, gorgeous labels, diverse portfolio, one, a favorite, which is called Persistence. There must be a story behind that. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we have a, just for the visual, for those who don't know our wines, we have a mustard flower on the label. And the very first, I'm going to digress just a little bit here, the first wines that Susie and I ever made, we thought, why would anyone ever walk into a wine shop when you've never heard of Reynolds Family Winery? Why would you ever pick it up? You know, back then in Duckhorn or, you know, Camus or... And so we thought, what if Napa is known for its wild mustard flowers this time of year and the vineyards are starting to pop up with mustard? And we thought, what if we glued, picked a real flower right from our own vineyard, right underneath where the grapes grow, and we hand glued a real flower on every bottle? Would, would people notice that? And maybe at least if they'd notice that, it would get into the shopping cart and we'd have a chance to get home. Because we knew if you would see the, that handcrafted from the outside, what's inside must be, you know, we paid as much attention to on the inside as well. So that became our signature. And uh, we were going to kind of do, you know, we were going to be the in-out burger of Cabernet. <laughs> you know, I was going to just be a cab producer, make one or two cabs and just focus on one or two things. But the wine world teaches you that uh, if you're going to host a wine dinner or an event, people kind of want more than just Cabernet. You need to have a lighter wine to start the evening and host a wine dinner, you need three or four wines at least. So we started making my first blended wine it was in 2001 and it was called Persistence. And we won't go into the whole story, but you know, getting into this property, we had a lady next door throw a lawsuit against us. So here we buy this property, borrowing money from people we really shouldn't be borrowing money from. We borrowed money from my parents to plant the property. Susie goes back to working insurance. Um, I'm still trying to be a dentist. We have a six-month-old baby, and uh, we didn't weren't able to build our winery because of this lawsuit. So for two years, we were paying lawyers, eating up whatever little bit of money we had, and now our grapes start to come in, and I have no place to make the wine. So there was a, a another specialist here in town that w that owned a winery, and he said, "Hey, Steve, you know, come on over and just help me out a little bit this summer. I know you're handy. If you can help me around the winery." Um, I'll just let you make your wines in the back section of our barn back here in the back of the winery and great so you know I you again you let me have that opportunity boy I rented bobcats put in gravel roads poured concrete brought over tanks rewired electrical and uh, not to mention trying to still work on our house over here and keep this property going so we pick our first grapes and life is great and like here we are we're farmers this is awesome we're gonna make wine and so I'm at my dental office and uh, a phone call comes in and I go take it and this gentleman says, I'm not mentioning names, um, Steve, you got four days to get everything out of here. Um, the county's shutting me down. And uh, it's a long story, but it has to do with taxes and some permits and uh, I don't want your stuff to get repossessed because mine's going to. So here I am, six month old baby, wife working, you know, going this life, we've never been down. Wow. And the wine, wineries are all full up. You know, it's like the, again, I'll use the Super Bowl. You know, even if your buddies own a hotel, even though you're there, your buddies, it's booked, it's booked. The closest winery I could find was in San Benito County, which is Hollister down by Carmel. So I would see patients till noon. I would drive almost four hours, um, work on the wine, almost staying up all night, either sleep in my car. Sometimes I got to sleep with Frank at his house, the owner of the winery. 
and I'd drive back to Napa and get up and do it again. Susie would leave me a fresh shirt and, and uh, you know, it was like the hardest thing you ever go through. So I did this for about eight or nine days and then to make it worse, not that it sounds like it could get worse, my mom called me and said, your dad's super sick and he's at Stanford and just got back from Asia. So right about 61 years old, I lost my dad to cancer within nine days of that. I'm so sorry. So here we're, you know, you're looking up at the sky at those moments going, yeah, gosh, I really feel like I went to Sunday school. I did. I think I did everything right. I don't think I've wronged anyone in my life. Well, what's going on here? But, you know, it doesn't kill you again, makes you stronger. And I read this article about a guy who had waited tables and uh, for 40 years and had a part-time job on Broadway, had a little small supporting role. And he ended up winning, I believe it's called the Tony Award, but I'm not super good at those things. Um, and he said it was pure persistence of doing what he had to do to support what he loved to do. So I read that word and I thought, um, in addition, there's Calvin Coolidge that has mm -hmm. a great quote about persistence. So, the, so I put that on the back of the bottle and there was a little hidden story. Nobody knows the whole trauma, sleeping in cars thing. You know, most people when I go to wine dinners now say, so did your grandfather build this? You know, you, kinda, <laughs> you just snicker. You just have to internalize it, right? Um, mm -hmm. I don't think anyone in this day and age can conceive that people could go through so much, right, and come out the other end. I mean, I kind of feel like we're a little bit the American dream, but I don't want to you know, make it sound that way. But we, you know, we've definitely fought our way into this industry, and it's not been easy the whole way. But then again, you know what? You really wouldn't appreciate it if it weren't for struggle. So I like that American dream thing. I think yeah. that this country was built by dreamers. I agree. And as you were talking, I literally had goosebumps. I will never look at the bottle of persistence the same again. Well, and we didn't do a traditional Bordeaux blend, as you would imagine, right? So it's a Cabernet base, Cabernet Merlot, Cab Franc, Syrah, and Petit Bordeaux. So instead of using Malbec, um, we added about 8% Syrah into the blend. And I think it created a, you know, when I go to a wine list and I'm looking at Napa, you know, I have an expectation, I think, and I think most people do. They're looking for something that's a little bit richer in texture and uh, riper and fruit forward, hopefully balanced and well-made. But um, I didn't want to be, again, that term I used earlier, another Bordeaux want to be. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted you to be really in Napa and enjoying a Napa wine, but had all the great complexities of a European blend. There's a common industry speak um, that I find a bit pejorative. People talk dry but drink sweet. I think people gravitate towards more unctuous flavors that lay, on, you know, that land on you as sweet flavors. Right. What it's, on it's, earth is well, wrong with that? Yeah, it's fruit forwardness. And yeah. I grin, you know, I, my dad had a thing, and I really can't say it on the air, but my dad used to say, it's an effing grape. And we, mm -hmm. have you ever tasted a grape the day we're going to pick it? You know, I mean, whatever number you want it to be, but let's certainly say over 24 bricks and maybe 25, 26, 28. Mm -hmm. um, it's sweet. Table grapes, 17, 18%. So we're mm -hmm. way sweeter. And why sh should we be losing touch with that delicious fruit character? Because that's really what it is. And you know, we don't go into a steakhouse and say, you know, uh, it, you know, start talking about the plate and the A1 sauce you put over top. You know, you really should be talking about the steak. Maybe you add salt to bring out more of the essence of the meat, but why are we not talking about 
delicious Cabernet, delicious Merlot, delicious Sal Blanc, whatever your grape is, because they are delicious. So I think my vision of winemaking is um, really keeping that fruit alive through the wine. No residual sugar. I'm not a sugar guy. I don't like yeah. to keep, leave sugar in my wines. But keeping that fruit alive is way more difficult than picking a little underripe and having these higher acidic wines. Um, you know, that's another style. Um, they're certainly safer. Higher acid keeps the bacteria down. So making a little more delicious, umptuous wines is is a little more difficult. And uh, and we make ours very complex because we never ferment one way. We usually use at least, you know, wood barrels, stainless steel, and concrete eggs. So I take every vineyard and ferment it not once, but multiple times because a vineyard never ripens all at the same time. Your strawberries don't. There's sections that ripen. So we're fortunate that we can go in and do little small sneak attacks and take little sections out, ferment that, wait a week, ferment that. The sun side gets riper quicker than the shade side on the plant. Well, why would you go pick it all at the same time, right? So for consistency of flavors and characters, we ferment multiple times only when it's really ripe. And then those individual layers, even though it's the same vineyard, the same grape, fermented five or six different times, different ways, different yeasts, you're getting layering and complexity and richness across your tongue. You don't even notice because, you know, it's all been done differently, sort of the same, same, but different. Mm -hmm. you know? But I love the fact that you talk about picking fruit as an optimum. I mean, it's no different if you're going to go to a market and purchase a peach. Would you want a peach that like is mouth-wateringly ripe or do you want something that might ripen on your counter? Right. It's the same exact thing. We're talking about people use different terminology, but to me it's a matter of maturity. You want a mature fruit. Physiological ripeness is maturity. Would you rather right. have a conversation with somebody who's mature or somebody who's not? Or even that fruit analogy, if you're going to have the opportunity because your guests don't arrive and you're shopping once and you're up on the way up in the mountains and you got to let it sit for a week or so, and I get that, right? But if you're having guests over that night and you're making that dessert that day, you're, or an avocado, right? Sometimes you let them sit an extra day or two and they're great. Mm -hmm. And those little bags, some are darker and some are greener and some are ready to go and some need a little time. Well, in winemaking, we pick, we go, right? It's then, it's game on. You pick and that, that wine gets made. So you are capturing that grape at a moment in time. And it's not a matter of sitting around and it changing like a piece of fruit. So it really is, in the peach analogy, would be like really walking through the store and looking for those five great peaches to make that dessert that night. Well, you have the insurance policy when it comes to Reynolds Family Wines. They will never leave you wanting. I felt sated every time I had your wines, and I love that. Um, Speaking of Napa in general, because that's, that's your home, that's where you work, that's where you live, that's where your kids grew up, um, you've watched it now change and perhaps transform. We know that the land prices have gone pretty much out of control, <laughs> which is why it's so prohibitive. Um, but what are your thoughts, what are your observations about Napa? <clears throat> what do you wish happened more or less? Any philosophical comments that you'd like to make? Ooh, I think we're going to have to... I know, it's a loud question. Oh, I know, that's a scary one for me to even comment on. <laughs> you know, we've been through so much having to redo our permit because of law changes. So a little s sensitive to some of the things in the Valley. Um, some of the politics of Napa have, for, for, for good reasons, um, things have happened 
that sometimes didn't end up in the right place is the best way to put it. Mm -hmm. I'm very blessed that we have what we have. Mm -hmm. I feel sorry for my children and other young winemakers that would love to stake their claim here. It's mm -hmm. impossible now. Mm. So I think there's a lot of things that are that's making it obtrusive for people to be able to do what I do here now. And for that, I'm sorry, you know, but still the greatest place, I think, on the earth to make wine, so. It's highly addictive. Oh. When I'm not in Napa for like three days, I have withdrawals. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Um, so now you've learned that there's so much more. We still only discussed the tip of the iceberg, but there's so much more. So every time you look at a bottle of wine, hopefully, you'll remember some of the things that happened in this conversation and what it really means for this bottle to materialize in front of you. Um, you also um, have decided to do some distillation, <laughs> which is yeah. an interesting arm. It's also very artisanal, you know, very much craft spirits that you're engaged in, but it's not usual. I think I can think of only one other make, winemaker or two in the valley that ventured into spirits. So how did that come about? Well, again, you know, sometimes I feel like these things, they seemed weird, but I, so despite me acting like I had no luck, there was a lot of things I had great luck with. And one was, just ironically, my very first wine dinner I went out to do, and you know, at that there might have been eight people in the room. You know, nobody had heard of us, maybe twelve. So a couple of my guys here, I told them I'm going to be nervous to speak because coming from a dentist, you speak to one person in the room, whereas you get in front of a crowd of now seventy, eighty, a hundred people. Um, you know, it's different publicly speaking. So my guys, of course, all from Mexico, here say, "Mr. Reynolds, drink some tequila. You'll speak really well." <laughs> so I took that to heart, and I. I bought everybody a tequila shot in my very first wine dinner. Oh. And I said, here's to the guys that never get thanked. The true winemakers of California never get to come to these wonderful places, these country clubs, and this is what they drink. So I like to honor those guys. And, and then I go on to say, behind the kitchen tonight, there's people you'll never meet. This is for the people behind all of us that allow us to be here tonight. That toast has been there now for 21 years. and. I started to become that guy everybody thought knew or thought was the expert on tequila, and I really wasn't. And uh, I liked it. So about seven years ago, I decided to go down and try a brand and learn about it. And uh, I'd made a wine um, back in the day, um, 2002 it started, called Appalachians. So it was the idea of a couple winemakers and a vineyard guy sitting around drinking margaritas, of course, and during harvest. and. We were fighting over who had the best vineyards in Napa. And it's a Ford Chevy conversation. That's never gonna get one, right, or religious. Um, but one guy said, has anyone ever made a wine that had all of Napa? And at that time, there were 13 recognized regions of Napa Valley, um, sub-Appalachians. Mm -hmm. So we ended that evening and we started a wine called 13. It was the first wine that had 13 cult vineyards representing each of the regions of Napa. And the joke was, you know, we blended it all together that how could you keep a cork in a bottle with so many egos? So it was, it was kind of funny. <laughs> so that lived on, right? And as 14 came along, the name changed to 14 Appalachians, 15, and now it's 16. Well, in Mexico, there are 32 states. Five of them can make tequila, but nobody had ever made tequila that had five layers, had the five states blended together. And I'm looking at this thing and it's so obvious, right? How come nobody's done this? So in the end, I we made a tequila. That's what I ended up going down and growing agave in all of Mexico's five regions. So the brand's called Penta. Mm -hmm. 
And just like in the wine world, there are five noble grapes from France, Cabernet, Merlot, Cab Franc, Malbec, and Petit Verdot. We've been blending these for centuries. Um, we're the first guys to go down and make a complex tequila. Um, and we won't talk much longer because I know this is dragging on, but it, it, it's a tequila made through winemaker's vision. Um, I have four great partners. We're all in the wine world, and the attention to detail in wine has been there for centuries. You know, the stature of a country almost sometimes came through its wines, and uh, so a lot of money has been put into wine. Tequila, not so much. It's always been the poor man's beverage. And uh, so we did the things that nobody else had done. We cut off a lot more of the skin. We cut the heart out, so we only used the sweet meat. We cooked it longer and slower. We used purified well water. We flew over yeast specialists. We're the first guys to do multiple trials with champagne yeast. And all of our flavors come from wood, so we custom-built all of our barrels from local barrel builders here. And uh, so it's a very unique product. Um, it's tequila with much more refinement and elegance. And uh, it's a pretty cool little thing. And I've had an opportunity to, to taste test it with other brands. I was fortunate enough to be a guest at one of the events that showcased very popular brands. They're all great. But I have to say that your tequila had a presence, palatal presence, textural elements that were so wonderful yeah. yes so what you're describing the winemaker's vision it really showed up on the palate well i um promised you guys in the beginning that this multifaceted gentleman farmer perhaps first <laughs> and then in terms of the winemaking i think you're a farmer at heart you're a vineyardist um had so many accomplishments um i don't know how you do it all having the kids and the family and we um, will at this moment pay a tribute to The Rock, Susie Reynolds. Absolutely. Um, that was in, instrumental as a great partner in every way and I think that's a huge reason for all the successes that you've had. And 100%. your winemaking philosophy that's so unique unto itself and how you came to it is, is very precious and how you acknowledge people behind the scenes that make it all possible, the support system. I think those are the things that really make wine country special. It's people like you that acknowledge what it takes to get it from the proverbial grape to glass, even before the grape shows up, actually, oh, all yeah. the way to people's table. I think that's fabulous. Um, what's in store for the future? What What is your vision for yourself and just a global perspective? Ah, that's a very, very good question. I feel like I kind of want to keep doing this forever, but um, I also wouldn't mind laying on the beach with my wife somewhere for a while. So. <laughs> um, you know, my oldest, Cameron, is graduating from Cal Poly with a wine and viticulture degree, so hopefully he'll bring some freshness into the business here and mm -hmm. his own fresh ideas. And, um, um, you know, we've ventured out into not only tequila, but we're starting to do a canning project with a little wine called Naughty. So Ooh. that's kind of cool and fun. Yeah. And I want, you know, him to have some fresh direction on that. Um, I have a daughter, Rebecca, who's playing water polo at Davis and studying psychology currently. And not sure if she wants to come into the industry. And my youngest is Sarah, who's still in high school. And uh, again, I don't know where any of them want to go, but... You know, for us, I think in building this, you know, where does a legacy start? You know, somebody has to start it and then pass it on, right? Generations, the Mondavis being a great, the best, probably Napa example thereof, uh, or 
um, Neobomb, Coppola, and you know any of those guys. You know, you know those are generational things, and somebody has to come here and start that. So we tried to again, you know, put our foot into this and give our kids a fighting chance at it. But if they don't want it, that's okay too. It's an option. That's all it is. Um, and if they don't want it, you know, who knows what we'll do. But for now. I'm just going to stay the course and every year try to learn more and try to listen. You know, now it's funny. Now I'm the gray haired guy, right? That used to be the young kid listening to all these other guys. And now these young <laughs> winemakers come up to me and go, oh my God, we followed you for years or something. And it's so weird to be that guy, right? That older guy. So I think I got a few more years left in me, but after that, who knows, you know? Well, we're going to need to tap more into that sage wisdom that you've acquired. Um, I would love to sit down with you sometime and have some glasses in front of us and really dig deep. Talk Perfect. nerdy. Talk, Heck yeah. Talk naughty. Tequila in one hand and <laughs> wine in the other. <laughs> we need to. We need a follow-up. I've been hugely incentivized by this, and I know that you guys have been as well because there's so many salient points. There's so much wisdom in what you have to say, not just about wine, but also life. And for that, I thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for hearing my long, boring stories with a cold. So thanks for putting up with me. <laughs> thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Palette Exposure featuring Alona Thompson. We'll see you again next week.